When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Hey, everyone. You might remember me from Teen Mom 2, but my 15 minutes is almost up. So I'm back with another podcast. I'm your barely famous host, Kale Lowry, and I'm catching up with people from my past, putting my exes on the hot seat and chatting with TikTokers, influencers, and other reality stars. Get Weird With Me every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the best things you can do for your health, of course, is to get at least seven hours of quality sleep every night. It's hard to get that much sleep. Your mind keeps you awake. Your schedule doesn't allow it. Hundreds of reasons why we don't get adequate sleep, but it's super important. And of course, your body heals, your brain resets and heals and clears itself of um, you know these things that accumulate that we use sleep to clear it for. And if you're not getting enough sleep, you're increasing your risk of various diseases, also making it harder to lose weight. Well, an easy way to get more quality sleep, make sure you're getting enough magnesium. Believe it or not, around 75% of people do not get enough, which explains some of the problem. Unfortunately, most magnesiums are not full spectrum. They won't fix the deficiency or help you sleep better. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium. You need to get all of them to experience the full benefits. Magnesium Breakthrough by by Optimizers provides that. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed and see what you think. And I suspect you'll be more rested when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for our listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash Drew to save up to 42%. Again, 42% on magbreakthrough when you go to magbreakthrough, M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H, magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. Symbiotica is a health supplement company designing sophisticated formulations that are proven to increase vitality and improve nutritional health overall. I use several of their products. Symbiotica's liposomal magnesium L3 and 8 developed by a team of scientists. Symbiotica's super green, a convenient way to boost your daily nutrition as well. Liposomal vitamin C, a synergistic formula that plays a key role in immune function. You've heard me talk about that during the COVID crisis, of course. And they've got a D3K2 CoQ10 product. I use that literally every day. Take their online quiz to figure out the best supplement for your healthcare needs. And if you use code DREW at symbiotica.com, you'll get 15%. And if you use code DREW at symbiotica.com, you'll get 15% off site-wide. Or you can create your own custom bundle and get up to 45% off. That is at C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A, Symbiotica, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. 15% off with code Drew and 45% off if you generate your own custom bundle. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 
96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Who Podcast. Uh, appreciate you all being here. Appreciate you supporting the people that support us. Appreciate you also checking out some of the other stuff we're doing. TV for the streaming show. Some interesting guests there. I may bring the present guest around uh, over to that show as well one of these days very soon. And, uh, yeah, check around at uh, Dr. Dupinski on uh, Instagram, and we're over there on TikTok a bit as well. Today, I'm privileged to welcome Whitney Goodman. Her book is Toxic Positivity, Keeping It Real in a World Obsessed with Being Happy. We're going to talk about happiness and its misconceptions and uh, mm, the the ext- extraordinary preoccupations we have with this stuff as opposed to leading a good life, which has been my point. Uh, Whitney's Instagram is at sitwithwit, W-H-I-T, website sitwithwit.com. Counseling Center website is collabcounselingcenter.com. Again, Whitney Goodman, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So talk a little bit about your training and then how you got into this particular topic, because I'm sure you had to tell that story many times. So let's kind of start out with that. Sure. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I work mainly with individuals that are dealing with relationship issues, particularly with family, siblings, partners, things like that. Um, I noticed very early on in my career, I was working with um, patients and family members who are dealing with cancer that there was this immense pressure to be happy and everything sort of hinged on being happy, uh, survival, our health, our wellness, all of that. And it was very hard for me to buy into. And the more I started having these conversations with people in my office, friends, family, I picked up on the fact that a lot of us were really struggling with this demand to be positive all the time. And it seemed like we're looking for a different way out. Let's talk about happiness. And I noticed what I, one of the things I like about how you frame things, you tend to gravitate towards positivity rather than happiness, which I think is an important move. From my perspective, and you tell me if you agree with this or not, in this country, when we talk about happiness, we don't even know what the fuck, what the F we're talking about. We don't even know what we mean anymore. Uh, and I, and happiness is something that has been discussed all the way back to Aristotle. And we even mischaracterized in sort of recent literature discussions about Aristotle's position. We even misdefined mis, mis, um, uh, what he was calling as happiness. He didn't even mean what we thought he meant because we had such a bias towards Yahoo happiness and euphoria. But I'll let you hear your thoughts on that. I I totally agree. I think we have no idea what we're talking about. And it's become this amorphous concept that we're always chasing. Um, And it's been very commercialized, right? Mm -hmm. Happiness is now a commodity that you can purchase or get with whatever new thing you're doing. And I think positivity is very different from happiness, especially when we're talking about toxic positivity. That is a totally different concept than trying to 
infuse more happiness in your life. It's interesting to me that you came to this through cancer because I I could see, I don't know if I would argue this or not, but I could see where we started down this path by hiding illness and death behind hospitals and the medical profession. And we still do it to this day. I mean, I think people are getting a little better than sort of when I started practicing medicine in the 80s and 90s, it was you just you you couldn't get people to even address aging, let alone dying. They wouldn't do it. There was no palliative care yet. Everything was going to the mat for everybody all the time, and it, it was a it it created a huge distortion about the nature of of the human condition. Do you agree with that? For sure. And now I think it has shifted. Um, when I was working with cancer, there was sort of this new thing of like the mind body connection. And oh, we're yeah. talking about that a lot more now. And, right. and yes, there's a lot of validity to that. There's a lot of new research, but I saw it being taken to the extreme, yes. especially with these <laughs> specific people yep. where it's like, if you're not happy and positive, you're going to die. Yes. Your treatment's not going to work. Yes, I agree. And horrible. that's horrible. not necessarily true. That's horrible. Yes. It's terrible. Exactly. It's terrible. So, yeah. so, uh, again, so we are deeply aligned on this issue. Um, before I let you talk more about what Keeping It Real is all about, which is your book, uh, I want to do a little more on happiness versus uh, – See, so finally, I've noticed people are def- de- at least dividing happiness into eudaimonic happiness, which is sort of a more nurturing um, quality that isn't necessarily – feel good and hedonic happiness, which is about euphoria, which is what my heroin addicts uh, indulge in. And when when I first started seeing so much stuff about happiness in the 90s, I was thinking, hey, guys, uh, this is way off. There's no one happier than my heroin addicts when they get their first hit. That's Yahoo euphoria, happy. They are not leading a good life. They are not happy in any sense of being fulfilled or, you know, the million other aspects to eudaimonic happiness that we at the time were missing and continue to miss to this day. Uh, do you agree with that that differentiation between hedonic tone and eudaimonic? And want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. I, I think a lot of people have this sense that if they're doing happiness right, they're feeling that hedonic state all the time, yeah. right? They're yeah. feeling joyful and, yeah. and all of that. And what yeah. I really argue in my book and try to push through my work is more this idea of you said fulfillment and living in line with our values and knowing that we're probably not going to feel good all, all the time when we're pursuing the things that matter to us, but we feel much more grounded and in line with our values. It, and I would call that sort of loosely speaking, a good life, right? Leading a good life. Uh, and I, what I, when I talk to people about this, I go, do you think Jesus was happy all the time? Do you think he felt great about what was going on? But, but did he lead a good life? Uh, and a good life doesn't feel good, and sometimes it feels bad. But it still has a, I don't know whether, whether word to use, but status or, or a sort of a position that naturally is superior to just hedonic happiness, which again, back to my heroin addicts, they're, they're yahoo, they're happy right away. Uh, and we we seem to have lost track of the good life. And and again, when people, even when I say the good life, they start immediately think people in this country start thinking about, oh, you get to live at the beach, you have lots of money, that's the good life. No, that's not what we're talking about. So talk to me about keeping it real in a world obsessed with happy. 
So I think we have to move away from this constant pursuit of, of happiness and really get back to this middle road of like, you're talking about the good life. And I talk a lot about the good enough life of thinking about what matters to me, what's fulfilling, and also how can I be authentic about my experience and not try to suppress and hide everything bad that I'm going through and also put on this sort of like fake performance that we see often like on social media or our outward expression of how we're feeling and how different that is from what we're actually feeling inside. From a psychodynamic perspective, as you're working with people on a deeper level when you when you close the door, what is underlying most of that? Is there a common kind of uh, phenomenon in this uh, detachment from authenticity? I think a lot of people feel a deep sense of shame for feeling how they're feeling. And, and there's this sense of like, I shouldn't be feeling like that. I shouldn't be struggling. I should be okay. And I think now that we're living in a world where like we sort of have an avatar of ourselves and then our real selves, and there's such a disconnect there that it's hard to live authentically. You're always opening yourself up for judgment or criticism when you put that out there. So when I think about people that are prone to shame, I think about abandonment and uh, adverse childhood experiences. So I'm guessing that's the underpinning that, of course, everyone refuses to talk about, but why don't you talk about it? <laughs> yeah. I would say the majority of the people I work with that have trouble expressing their feelings, talking about their feelings, validating themselves, grew up in homes where that was not allowed. It was not modeled for them, or they were punished or shamed for having any of those types of normal human experiences. And so it takes a long time to get out of that mode and to really convince yourself like, hey, I'm allowed to have these types of feelings and express them. So I was one of these people that was fairly disconnected from affect. Uh, and for me, as I've seen for many of my patients and many other people, you can't rewire that connection without having an other, meaning a trained person ideally, sit and hold the frame for you and reflect back to you a million times as you rebuild those connections. Mm -hmm. uh, is, I'm sure that's sort of the work you do, right? Is that accurate? Yeah. Yes. And that's, it's, in a way, that's kind of trauma therapy in a way. I mean, it's not specific trauma therapy because, you know, it's not EMDR or something like that, but, it, but it's, it's emotionally focused therapy. Would you, would you agree with that? Is that mm -hmm. what it is? Yeah. Is, is yes. it proper to characterize yes. it that way as EFT or a kind of an EFT? Um, kind of, I yeah. guess. Okay. I, yeah. I think it would probably have a lot of overlaps with yeah. different types of therapies. Yes. Agreed. Um, how, how did you come to this? Come to this realization of, Come to of this, this, figuring out that that was a problem. Both the realization you said through cancer patients, but also I'm guessing your, mm -hmm. I'm guessing your technique adjusted at the same time. And so I'm, I'm just wondering what your story was with this. Absolutely. So oddly enough, social media played a huge role in me kind of coming to this and changing my style as a therapist. I was definitely trained in this, like, be a blank slate um, don't show up fully as a human being. And it wasn't until I started talking with clients and showing up online that I realized people actually want more of that authenticity. They want the therapist to say like, what's going on? You know, what's the problem here? Let's really talk about it and get honest about what you're feeling and, and also express like, Hey, I deal with this too. Uh, no one is perfect. No one's immune to that. Yeah. And, and, I'm trying to think of what technically is going on between you and the, and the client. It's it's interpersonal 
analysis. It's, inter, it's interpersonal psychotherapy, right? It's just plain old <laughs> you, you you engage in something called a relationship and the, that relationship is held in a safe environment and you're there – there's one person wanting help and you're there helping. <laughs> and that's the fundamental part. Right. Yeah. And I, I think just modeling that as well, that like you can share this with me and I'm going to safely receive it, hold it and yeah. not meet you with judgment or criticism. So, so, so it's, it's basic. It's sort of, do you, are you familiar with Peter Fonagy, his stuff? I'm not. Right. Mentalizing. He's the mentalizing guy. He invented that whole exchange. Okay. And it's really, he'd sort of, operationalize this exchange that you were talking about, you know, what actually is going on when one person is doing that to the other. Um, and it, it is essentially calling upon two things, I think, and you tell me if this is accurate, um, attachment mechanisms. You're sort of, you're sort of re-equilibrating insecure or ambivalent attachments and allowing for something they used to call rapprochement where you become the secure base because therapy happens in real time. It happens in, in the context of living. And so that person gets to go out into the world and they come back to you with material for a secure attachment and, and processing of that material. Is, is that the basic mechanism? Absolutely. I, I think that that's what I strive to provide through my work is like, this is always the place that you can come back to and work on that attachment and see that you're able to form those types of attachments. And then people are able to recreate those out in the real world. And do you notice, I, I've read some literature once a while ago that suggested that if an individual can form a secure attachment, typically it requires a professional to really navigate that because it's when you're insecure, you you do things in your relationships uh, subconsciously and the therapist interferes with that by creating secure attachments. Um it gets translated out into the primary attachments like spouses and you know close relationships, and those become more secure. And those people change a little bit too. Do you, do you find that to be true? Uh, that's something I believe in very strongly, and I find that to be true anecdotally through my work, absolutely. I don't feel like a lot of mental health professionals are doing what you do. <laughs> am, I, <laughs> am, I, am, I, am I wrong? Yeah, um, it, you know, I, I think there's been a big push towards like manualized treatment, CBT, uh, very focused yes. on like a specific thing yes. that because I come from like a systems lens as a family therapist, I'm mainly working in that realm. I, I would bet that it's quite different. Um, from yeah, that I, type it, of it bothers me I, not to not to diminish the efficacy of CBT because it does help. It just mm-hmm. misses the richness of the stuff we're talking about, which For which sure. are which are really I mean changes who we are not in a fundamental way in terms of our personality function, but fundamentally in terms of our like we ta- began talking about our authenticity, the things we connect with, the sort of primary affects. Let me ask you this: um, I'm going to throw a provocative question out there, <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to decide if I'm going to lead the witness or not. I'm going to relead you a little bit. It's hard enough to have a single attachment, right? It's hard to get people to have a single secure good attachment. What do we do with all these people going, I just have many polyamorous whatever and I have many and I love everybody and blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, what do we do with those people? For my, my approach, by the way, has just been uh, live your best life. Good. If it works for you, fine. But I know for sure. Yeah. I know for sure it's not because of the work people <laughs> like you do. But you tell me what we do with it. So – 
My approach as a clinician to anyone that comes with me with whatever it is, is I want to know how is this impacting your life and what problems is it causing you? And if people tell me this isn't causing any problems in my life, I don't think it's an issue for me. I don't really see it to be my job to tell them that it is. I may just gently point out like, well, you brought this up or that. Do you think it could be related to this? Um, they but are at the so, end of the day, people get to choose. That, uh, for sure, but they, but you're you're dealing with rigid abject denial is what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes mm-hmm. you have to kind of pierce that a little bit. <laughs> Whether they want to work on it is sure. up to them. But uh, right, right. a lot of I found a lot of therapeutic wonderment is helpful. Geez, you keep talking <laughs> about the conflicts with the other sister wives. They're, hmm, you never get to see your primary. You seem lonely. <laughs> Just I wonder what that's about. Right. <laughs> Sure, sure, uh, absolutely. Because I've never, I, I welcome people to give it a try if that's what they want to do. But I'm, I, it's hard enough to get two people to connect. It's impossible. <laughs> you spend your whole career yeah. doing it. It's impossible. You have to. It's, it's like, it's like, un, it's unwinding a, a, a spool of thread and then turning it into an origami, you know, character. It's really complicated. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's definitely an area that. I don't see a lot of in my own office, yeah. so I don't have a ton of experience with it. Okay, I'm gonna. I've been leading you along through through all this. <laughs> t- t- tell me more. What's interesting to you? What you like people to know about toxic positivity? Sure. Uh, you know, I think for me, the real message behind why I wanted to write this book was that I think we lose out on so much connection, and we've been talking about attachment and, and forming bonds when we reject how other people are feeling or tell them to put a happy smile or a positive spin on something. And so that's what I really want to encourage people to do is to try to learn how to sit with people when they're in distress and not fix it or put a spin on it. It is really hard. And just to say like, that sucks. That sounds hard. Mm. So, so really what we're talking about is boundaries, right? And, Mm -hmm. and, and a willingness to sit with uncomfortable things. Those are, and that, that helps us establish boundaries, just doing that. But but this this tendency to want to rescue, um, I I think one of the major well I know I suffered from this one of the major motivating factors in people wanting to rescue other people is not just that it's uncomfortable to see other people in distress, but it mobilizes our own pain. And we start to confuse their pain and our pain. And for somebody with mm-hmm. boundary issues and codependency and things like that, these things are are extremely vague and difficult to tease out if you're not having treatment. And again, it's, I'm, I'm someone that has experienced both sides of this. And, and trust me, having been through treatment, much more effective at sitting and being present with somebody, much more effective. If I prior to care, prior to therapy – had tried to sit with somebody, I'm not sure I could have been fully present. I would have dissociated. I would have rescued. I would have something. Something would have gone off that that because because my boundaries were, were porous. Um, so so how do you coach somebody up who's like I was? Yeah, so I definitely struggled with that too, especially early on in my career. And yeah. I think it takes a lot of work to learn like. I can't save this person. And sometimes my motivations for wanting to do that are actually quite selfish. Mm-hmm. But you don't um, see it. You can't about, see it. It's you know, all, it's on such a deep level. Right. You, can, you can't see it. You don't know it's, you don't know it's your pain. You just, it's just pain. You just see the, the pain in the other yeah. person. And you, and you, you know, be, and again, personally, I was, I experienced myself sort of through other people a lot. And so it just seemed like their pain, but I 
you know, for years and years of therapy, you realize, oh, shit, that, that's really <laughs> my pain that, that's got to tease out there. So go yeah. ahead. I, I feel like you have to really work on moving out of this mindset of that, like, I am the fixer, I am the helper, and more like I am the person that is walking alongside this person in their journey, in their process. And that just means, like, I'm a witness, I'm somebody that can offer insight, but I am not the expert on their lived experience. I am not the fixer. And that takes a lot of practice, but I think it also frees us up from a lot of the pressure that comes with trying to fix and save people and continuously failing at that because it doesn't work. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> that is true. But let's talk to, how would we coach up a friend of somebody who just is dealing with grief, a major, major loss? What, what, what should, mm-hmm. let's, I think we can use a little cognitive stuff here with some basic ABCs of how to approach and then try to stay cool with your boundaries, which is the harder part. Yeah. I think if you have uh, someone that's going through loss, my first thing is to try to meet the person where they're at and seek understanding, right? So what is this like for you? What are you experiencing? And that's also a great way to bring yourself out of the fixing role is more just like, I want to learn about their experience instead of trying to find solutions. And then of course, validation and compassion of that sounds hard. Um, you know, I, I really feel for what you're going through. This is difficult situation. And from there thinking about what is my skill set best suited for to help this person? And also what kind of help are they asking for? We often want to help just in the ways that we think are good, but instead asking what would be helpful for you and trying to set boundaries around that and also mobilize our action in that area. I find that usually they will just say, I just need you to be here. Mm-hmm. That's hundred percent of the time. Yeah, that's sort of the most common thing. And, and in terms of being here, they, they don't mean be here and tell me things are going to be better. They specifically don't mean that because <laughs> because they're not. It's it sucks. It's hard. And just to really just sort of nod and be as present as you can be is really more meaningful than anything. And then, and then again, there's things you can do to help people that are struggling. You can get them food. You can help them clean the house. You can do things. And that's important too. Yeah. It, you know, I think for anyone that's been in therapy, you probably, there have been sessions I have with people at the end that they're like, wow, that was so helpful. And I'm like, gosh, I don't really do much of anything except kind of like nod, listen to you, make eye contact. And just that presence, that uninterrupted presence is so huge for people. There's there's another thing that uh, Fonagy points out that you probably do subconsciously, and, and I notice female therapists do it a little better than male therapists, which is with the small muscles in your face, reflect back a second-order representation of the affect states of the patient, if that makes sense. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you literally are – it's not mirroring. It's it's you're reflecting uh, an, an appreciation without without contagion. You're like if they're sad, your your face, you're the small muscles of the corner of the mouth and the corner of the eyes kind of reflect it. And it and it's I think women do that automatically. I think it's something that it's mm. it's it's the important exchange that goes on between moms and babies. Uh, men can do it. We can do it, but we have to really we have to really muscle it a little bit, and we become better at it with time. But do you do you know what I'm talking about? Does that make sense to you? For sure, I think especially with um, virtual therapy being so popular mm-hmm. now, that's really mm-hmm. the majority of what I do. I'm quite conscious of how my face is coming across because that is 
the majority of the body language that I'm showing yes. um, in the session. Yes. That's interesting. Sinus pain, congestion, heaviness in the face, and, you know, maxillary fullness, watery eyes, headaches, runny nose, over-the-counter prescription medication has side effects, corticosteroid sprays, chronic steroids. Do you really want to do that? Well, I'm here to tell you about a new product that might change your life. Introducing Tivic ClearUp, an easy-to-use, FDA-approved medical device that fits in the palm of your hand. Created by physicians and neuroscientists, Tivic ClearUp stops suffering by using bioelectric technology to reduce sinus pain and congestion. You simply glide Tivic ClearUp on areas of your face where you're experiencing the sinus pain. Try Tivic ClearUp today with a 60-day risk-free trial. Go to Tivic Health, that is T-I-V-I-C-H-E-L-T-H, Tivic Health, just like it sounds, TivicHealth.com, and enter the promo code DREW22. That's DREW22, and you'll receive $20 off plus free shipping on your first ClearUp device. Tivic ClearUp works when nothing else can. Our friend Jordan Harbinger, you know we love him. He's a great guy, smart guy, broad life experience, speaks multiple languages. He himself has been held hostage more than once. Who can say that? <clears throat> and the Jordan Harbinger Show is a podcast you should be listening to. Name one of Apple's best of 2018. Aims at making you better informed, more critical thinker. Each episode is a conversation with a fascinating guest. We can tell you about... <laughs> Look, a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. That's just one of the. How about an FBI negotiator who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you? Interesting, useful, right? Jordan is always focused on getting useful, practical insights out of his guests. We enjoy Jordan Harbinger. I think you will, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe you've been thinking about a backyard makeover. Well, think about this idea. Michael Phelps Swim Spa by Master Spas. It comes in a variety of sizes to complement almost any backyard. Of course, the water buoyancy relieves pressure if you've got some older family members that need some water exercise. It's a great way to do it. And of course, you can exercise more vigorously with the Michael Phelps Swim Spas as well. They're 100% made in the USA by Master Spas, the world's largest swim spa manufacturers. You're going to love the Michael Phelps Swim Spa by Master Spas. Go to masterspas.com, put in the promo code DREW to save $1,000 on a Michael Phelps Swim Spa or $500 on a Master Spas hot tub. That is masterspas.com, promo code DREW. Well, we're all going to win a trip these holidays, no doubt. Important to take a second and be prepared for the unexpected. A great way is Air MedCare Network Fly You Home Membership. AMCN Fly You Home is all about taking control of your care. If you're hurt or sick or hospitalized more than 150 nautical miles from home, they will transport you to a hospital of your choice in a medically equipped private aircraft, and you won't have to pay a dime out of pocket. They have completed more than 18,000 missions and 30 years of experience. You can expect industry-leading care while recovering. Now, I know what you're thinking. This must be expensive. But it is as cheap as $134 a year for your entire household. And if you use the code Dr. Drew, that's D-R-D-R-E-W, they'll give you up to a $60 gift card when you join. That, that's, it's so effective and so efficient. It's so cost efficient. 
For those of you like me that like moving around, I cannot recommend enough the peace of mind you will feel with an AMCN Fly You Home membership. Just visit airmedcarenetwork.com slash Dr. Drew today and get up to a $60 gift card with code Dr. Drew. Again, that is airmedcarenetwork slash Dr. Drew and code Dr. Drew. So, so you're, you're, you're validating my belief that these, these facial musculature sort of reflections uh, are what, probably what that one patient was talking about. We said it was so helpful. You were, you were giving back. You were holding and then giving back their own emotions so they could metabolize it. You were sort of metabolizing it with them. But, but this does bring up the other issue, which is two bodies in space exchange a lot of information as well on sort of weird levels that are uncanny. Uh, do you lose that in some of the virtual visits? So it's interesting at the beginning, I, I felt that way. And then now the more that I've done it, I, I think some of that is lost and so many other things are gained that I notice clients are much more comfortable in their own spaces. They're more relaxed. Um, they attend appointments more frequently mm. that I wonder like what the difference is, you know, between what's being gained and lost. So, so ideally you do both really. Right. Yeah. Right. So down to that exchange of uncanny bodily-based exchanges, um, people that, including myself, that have either been the object of this kind of work or who do this kind of work as a therapist all have uncanny stories about information or experiences in the setting of the holding frame of therapy. Anything you can share with us? Like any experiences that are interesting? Like like you hear music that you've never heard before and it's meaningful to the patient or you get a feeling in a certain part of your body that's not yours. You kind of know it's not yours and you, uh. bring, and you bring it into the room and the patient says, yeah, well, that's what my dad used to kick me. Anyway, they, they, they will they, – my, my, experience, my experience is when you bring those extremely deep exchanges into the room, it's so matter of fact to the patient. They'll just sort of – they don't go, how did you know? They just go, yeah, yeah, that's that thing. And anyway, and so it's like, whoa. Yeah. How, how did I experience that? Right, right. I've definitely had more of those types of experiences. Um, maybe when doing EMDR with yes, clients, that makes sense. Where that makes sense. I notice that they move in a certain way, and like their eyes are closed, and it's an involuntary type of movement. Yeah. Um, or sometimes I get thoughts with a client where I'll say like, I'm just thinking about this and yes. it brings us on a tangent yes. of something from their childhood. That, that that's the kind of about. stuff. That's the kind of stuff I'm, I'm talking yeah. about. Cause, Cause I will occasionally sure. hear, I will hear music. Then I'm like, why am I hearing that? Mu-? That's not my music. I don't know what that is. Or I'll uh-huh. feel something or I'll smell something or again, I'll think something. And, and usually it's, it's a really an art form to bring that in. Cause, cause then you got to go, Hmm. There's probably something really here. When do I bring that into the room? And, and sometimes right. I've had people storm out when I brought it into the room. But then then they come back with then they come back with the how did you know stuff. But if it's mm-hmm. if it is sort of um, brought in more judiciously, uh, they'll usually just move right on. Like yeah yeah that's my thing. Anyway, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> it's weird, right? I don't know. We, we, it is. It is. Yeah. This and everyone has those stories that have been in these deeper experiences. I, I think it's our autonomic mm-hmm. nervous system. I, I think it is, you know, we have these sure. giant webs over our chest and our abdomen. We have no idea what they're doing. They are huge bundles of nervous tissue that have always been sort of dismissed as, well, that is your autonomic nervous system. You know, the parasympathetic system is, is uh, regulating your gut mobility and stuff. No, bullshit. It, it's informing the brain somehow. It's, it's giving us mm-hmm. stuff. And I suspect it has some sort of 
ex- some sort of perceptive exchange on some weird level with the other other bodies. It's very weird. You're nodding. It is very weird. It's so interesting. Yeah. yeah, I feel like we're going to learn, continue to learn so much about how that impacts us. Yeah. How, how is the book being received? Is are people uh, pushing back on this, or because because uh, it is kind of a <laughs> is an entrenched notion that people have positive. It is, Be you know, it's it's funny. I started talking about toxic positivity online like four years ago, and the, it became a book from there. And I always have gotten pushback of like, this is so stupid. Positivity <laughs> can't be toxic. People hate the word toxic. Um, especially when I tried to connect it to like larger themes in, in the world, people are like, Whoa, that's nuts. Give me, give me, give me an example. Um, give me an example. Of one of those themes. So, um, I have connected it to, you know, like how we treat people with disabilities, mm. how positivity is used in healthcare, the way we talk about race and racism and sexism that we always are trying to put a positive spin on everything. Mm. And there's some people that I think when they hear that stuff, it threatens their like, well, I'm just trying to be nice, yeah. like sensibility. Mm. And uh, it, it creates a lot of defensiveness mm. in my experience. How, you know, there's a whole world of positive psychology, right? Uh, are they pushing back on you? I, it's interesting to me that every enthusiast I've ever met for positive psychology ends up somewhere else. They end up kind of abandoning it and, and they, they like it. They still think it was useful, but they don't – not that useful. But are those people mm-hmm. coming after you? So what's very funny is when I was researching for this book, I decided to not really like um, attack positive psychology in any way as a means for my thesis. And when my book was about to come out, there was like three huge articles that came out in like the Atlantic, something else from positive psychology saying that now they wanted to embrace the negative side of our emotions. Oh, interesting. And it was this whole twist in kind of what I had read throughout all my research was an over-reliance on positivity and complete dismissal of the negative. So it seems like there's a shift going on within the culture of a lot of these communities, even within self-help and, you know, the people that really make their money off of that positive thinking. Yeah, There's it's, it's sort of going out of fashion is how I see it. Well, I'm going to tell you that they're changing because it, it didn't have the utility they thought it did. It, they they, well, they it want they, it didn't work. It's 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 not yeah. it's not useless. It's it's kind of a nice construct. I like it, and I've and I've always sort sure. of supported it. But it's not very useful, at least not in today's world. Um, oh crap! The other thing I was thinking about. Oh, the other thing I was thinking about. That's the corollary of this, which is the 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 sort of cognitive piece of it, which is slightly different. Which is you know think not depressed, be not depressed. You know, there's that world of your thoughts, your feelings will follow your thoughts, which is like kind of true at times, but really also deeply problematic in my opinion. Not not that people shouldn't try it, and some people might get great utility from it, but in terms of it being this this standard that you know, feel happy, be not depressed. It's like, uh, have happy thoughts. What do, what do we do with that? Because there, there is something to it. I mean, the positive, you know, sort of yeah. affir- affirmative thinking is like, it's not zero, but maybe temper our expectations on it or something. Right. What I found through like research on positive affirmations and a lot of that type of work is that it works for the people that don't really need it. Right. So it works for the people who have a pretty good life. You know, if, if we reduce everything down to just sort of like 
the person who has all their basic needs met, they're doing all right. They got a good job. Like, yeah, that's probably going to be enough for them. Yeah. But for the people who are struggling in a lot of other ways, medical conditions, things like that, it's not that simple. Yeah. I, I, I remember, what was the famous book? It was it had a yellow cover. This one psychiatrist did this thing about it. was like think good, feel good or something. I forget that. Oh, name. it's like the feeling good handbook. Something or like that. And, for, and they gave it to yeah, all. I, know, I can picture the cover. Yeah. <laughs> it's big letter, bold letters. And it, and it, um, mm. they gave back in the nineties and probably two thousands, they were handing it out. We had, we had a depressive disorders unit in the psychiatric hospital where I, li- where I worked, where I lived. That's a, that's a Freudian slip. Uh, <laughs> and that's why I practically lived there. Uh, and uh, they handed that book out to every single patient that came in the in the depression ward, and and I remember thinking at the time like, well, yeah, but <laughs> that sure would be nice. Why are you using all these medications then? If that's all they need to do is think right. True. Yeah, kind it's, of. It's certainly more complicated and nuanced than that, especially if we bring it back to talking about the nervous system and and all that. Has COVID nineteen added uh, a layer? I'm wondering of either resistance or acceptance to what you're what you're advocating i think it's added a lot of acceptance i noticed a huge shift um particularly in online social media spaces of people really just being like can we like cut the bs and talk about what's actually going on Mm -hmm. and how we actually feel and there was there was quite a lot of resistance to politicians leaders celebrities who were like we're all in this together and everything's great I found that people were getting very frustrated with good. that. That's good. That's real. That's authentic. Mm-hmm. That's authentic. That's a I that's agree. a back to authentic, and, and that's nice to hear. One of my disappointments in the whole thing was that we didn't have more end of life conversations and you know talk about you know aging and think what do we want? I mean, because the whole conversation about this being primarily something that took old people away, we 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 didn't get the advantage of having the conversation about how do we want to age. Do we want to be ever be in a nursing home? If we're debilitated, what? How far do we want to go? You know, and and everybody should have their own script for that. But for me, I kept saying, "Hey, no nursing home. I'm not going. If I'm so far gone that I need somebody to wipe my ass, turn me, and feed me, no nursing home." And do you know what the average life expectancy for a male in that condition is in a nursing home? It's six months. It's six months. So why why do that? Why do that? Even yeah. even even if it goes a couple yeah. years, forget it. Palliative care, fine, good. COVID nineteen, fine, whatever. Just let me, let me be. Uh, it's it's it is you know it used to be called the old man's friend pneumonia, and they was the and it was these kinds of infections that took people throughout history. I mean that's it. Now I'm not downplaying the the seriousness of the pandemic and that we you know we had a big problem in our hands, a, a nasty illness and that which we handled rather well by the way. We should feel pretty good about it. But uh, other than the excesses that caused more trouble than than uh, than solved, let me step away from that for a second and, and talk about uh, philosophy for a second. At the very beginning of this conversation, I mentioned Aristotle. I have found that you know when you get deep into this material, and you're as you clearly are, you, you sort of hit the limits of um, our professions. And, and philosophy becomes kind of a meaningful phenomenon. And, and that's kind of why specifically I brought up a good life, which is really more a philosophical concept than a psychological concept. H- have you found philosophy to be useful for you in, in the – not just the application, but in sort of thinking about your work? Uh, and if so, what what philosophical frame do you sort of rely on? 
So it's interesting because philosophy is not something that I have done a lot of work with um, throughout my life, throughout my professional career, but it's something that a lot of people have brought up to me after reading my book Mm -hmm. um, and have talked a lot about like stoicism Mm -hmm. and things like that, that now I'm just starting to kind of get in to my own learning about that because people have brought it to me saying they've been reminded of it um, through toxic positivity. I'm going to give you a recommendation. Um, There's a podcast called the, the, because I, I find that clinicians that are really doing the hard work of, change for humanity for humans you end up in philosophy you you end up needing some mm-hmm. philosophy and for me it's particularly around just what is leading a good life and you know what does it mean to be a good person and these kinds of things you know what are we doing here uh and there's a podcast go ahead and write it down it's called the partially examined life yeah the partially examined okay. life and in there they've got hundreds and hundreds of pods there these are that four four or five brilliant dudes that have read are exquisite readers of philosophy and are highly trained in it although are not doing philosophy professionally but sort of feel like it's a very important part of um accessing the human condition and the earlier ones like their first hundred or so they go over the basics and you can get aristotle and plato and the stoics and and maybe some some hume and some some it depends how far you want to go but but you really need those basic (laughs) basic basics and it, it really all goes back to the greeks I would, I would argue in the work that we do, not so much Plato, not so much, even though all the philosophers rely on Plato. It's more Aristotle and the Stoics. It's not, it's not an accident the Stoics come to mind for people when they're reading right. their stuff. And, and, they, and, and in a way, Stoics had sort of a, their own kind of philosophical cognitive behavioral therapy. It's sort of a CBT of, of sorts. Uh, and, but it is about and, – and people argue it's not even a philosophy. It's just how to lead your life which is kind of what we're talking about, you know, how, how to lead a good life, right? How to be a good person. For sure. Uh, and, and we've kind of lost track of all that. That's the other thing. It, it, it feels so important now because nobody's thinking about it, or at least I, think, I, beg, I take it back. Thanks to Ryan Holiday and some of these other writers, Stoicism has a massive renaissance right now. Uh, and so people are beginning to think about it, but they're just beginning. They're just beginning. It should, it should be part of everyday life, and we just don't have it so much in there. Well, listen, Whitney, it has been a, a privilege to talk to you. What, what else? What have I missed? What do you want to talk? What do you want people to be left with? Um, and what will make them go read Toxic Positivity? I think anyone who has ever felt like they need to suppress their emotions or like there's something wrong with them for feeling how they're feeling could really benefit from this work. And my motto, as we've talked about, is really just to live a life that's meaningful to you and that makes sense to you. You're gonna, you're gonna love the Stoics, and so <laughs> can't wait. I wrote what? this down. I'll let you know how it's, it goes. Yeah, they're they're really. I actually did a couple. I guessed it on a couple of their pods. It was quite um, oh cool. Really, like it was very much. Um, ultimate experience stuff for me. I really enjoyed working with those guys. Yeah. They're such good readers of philosophy. <laughs> I'm so I'm so like humbled by by the way they penetrate really difficult material. Um, all right. Well, I think uh, as Howard Stern always says, you've said it all. You said it all. We've we, we've we've talked about what what a meaningful life is, uh, what toxic positivity is doing to us, what we think we ought to be doing perhaps, uh, and how and, and I want to be really clear about this. 
it is you you are it's up to you and i don't mean you whitney i mean you the listener it's your life to leave as you wish to and uh, people i don't think are happy in the sense of eudaimonic happiness and think more about good life good person and what that means and 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 again the word good is all too 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 just so too too narrow uh, a, a meaningful life. I think I would think Whitney would agree with that. Mm-hmm. A meaningful existence. Yes. Um, the book is Toxic Positivity, Keeping It Real in a World Obsessed with Being Happy. And you, you understand now maybe what we think of as happy being a term that is woefully poorly understood. Instagram at sitwithwit, website sitwithwit, W-H-I-T dot com. And if people, people can be an online uh, patient of yours, right? If they go to uh, collabcounseling.com. Yes, I provide virtual therapy for people who live in the state of Florida. Oh, just in Florida. So they so the way the licensing yes. goes now, you can't go outside. God, that's that's nope. that's pathetic. Gotta be in Florida. That is yeah. Is that unique? Is that terrible. unique? For now, during COVID, I know physicians. We were able to go across state lines pretty liberally. Is that yeah, all? Yeah, uh, it's it's still very state specific on mm. that, and I've tried to just kind of keep it to Florida. But I know there's some stuff in the works to start making it more um, countrywide. It, it needs to be. It's it's, it's really frankly yeah, d- disgusting, agreed. disgusting, limiting the access to care. So that that's not good. Yeah. Uh, All right, Wendy, thank you so much. And uh, everyone else, we will see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. All this month, stream the funniest films for free on Pluto TV. Watch comedy classics like Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, and Mean Girls. Or drop in for a Tyler Perry marathon with a Medea family funeral and Medea's witness protection. Pluto TV also has hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows like Get Shorty, Be Cool, Key and Peel, Comedy and Color, and more. And no contracts, no subscriptions, no fees, no joke. So download the Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start laughing today. Pluto TV, drop in, watch free. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, you'll hear amazing stories from people that have lived them, from spies to CEOs, even an undercover agent who infiltrated the Gambino crime family. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with Jack Garcia, who did just that. My career was 24 out of 26 years, was solely dedicated working undercover. I walk in, I'm in the bar. Now there's a barmaid there, good looking young lady. She's serving me drink. Hey, what would you like? I usually, my drink was, give me a kettle, one martini, three olives, glass of water on the side. I finish the drink, the guys come in, I'm gonna go, go in my pocket, take out the big wad of money, Bam, I give her $100. If you're with the mob, I say, hey, Jordan, you're on record with us. That means we protect you. Nobody could shake you down. We could shake you down, but you're on record with us. 
For more on how Jack became so trusted in the highest levels of the Gambino organization, check out episode 392 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.